This is PT Pro Talk, the podcast for physical therapists who want to improve their clinical skills and be more successful. I'm Mariana Parks, physical therapist and your host. In today's episode, I'll be speaking with Dr. Alicia Emerson about the perspectives of both patients and therapists when dealing with chronic pain, the factors that contribute to their frustrations the vital role of effective communication in patient care, and strategies to improve it. Additionally, we will explore the importance of considering patients' diverse backgrounds, which encompass culture, finances, religion, and political beliefs. If this sounds interesting, please stay tuned and keep listening. Dr. Alicia Emerson, our guest, is an assistant professor in the Department of Physical Therapy at High Point University in High Point, North Carolina. She serves as the Director of Clinical Practice overseeing HPU's Pro Bono Physical Therapy Clinic that caters to an underserved and uninsured population, mainly dealing with chronic pain. Dr. Emerson holds a board-certified specialist in orthopedic designation, completed her orthopedic manual physical therapy fellowship at the University of Illinois at Chicago, and earned a Master's of Science in Rehabilitation Sciences from USC. Her research interests revolve around the functional implications of pain processing in complex patient presentations, community engagement, and the role of physical therapy in addressing health inequities, particularly in chronic pain. The research we will discuss today was part of her PhD work at the University of Otago, New Zealand. Thank you for tuning in, and we hope you enjoyed the show. PT ProTalk is only possible with the support of the forward-looking and innovative companies like Fitter First, your first choice for the best Canadian-made rehab and fitness products since 1985. Give your clinic admins and therapists the tools they will need to excel. Give them systems built for therapists with their patients in mind. Systems for Physical Therapists, the only EMR with a dedicated member's network. Hi, Alicia. Welcome to PT Pro Talk. How are you today? I'm good. Thank you so much. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Um, and so let's get started just talking a little bit about yourself and your background. Yeah. Um, so I was a clinician for 15 years. I worked predominantly on the South and West side of Chicago, um, just seeing a very diverse group of patients. So, you know, I treated the CEOs and I, the housing insecure, you know, the, the police and the incarcerated, the student and the professor, like I just saw the whole range of humanity and just was really fascinated by the patients that were coming through. And over time, I ended up really kind of focusing in on the chronic pain um, population that I treated. Awesome. And then I know you wrote your thesis and some other papers about our topic that's clinical conversation, communication. So I, I wanted to start talking about the PT and the patient's perspectives um, on that clinical conversation and, and that communication. Yeah. So that was really the, the, the focus of the, the PhD, right? So I, I, one, consider myself a perpetual student. So I've always gone back and kind of kept asking questions and trying to figure out 
what was going on. And I really found that treating chronic pain was really hinging on that conversation of what I understood or didn't understand what the patient was telling me, right? So when I was younger in my career and patients would tell me things like, oh, my pain gets worse when I sit under the air conditioning, that had made no sense to me whatsoever. It didn't fit in my training, which was a very biomedical baseline training, right? And I'm like, they're just, they're making this up. This has nothing to do with anything. What in the world is going on? And yet time and time again, the patients told me the same thing. Like, huh, there must be something to this. What am I missing? Right. And so I really started to dig in. And what I was finding through all this extra training I was doing is that really the patients know what's going on. They understand what seems to cause the problems. They just use terms that we don't understand, which is kind of funny, right? Because we often think about our medical terminology and medical jargon and avoiding that because they don't understand it. But I realized we were approaching the conversation almost speaking two different languages. So they had their descriptors, but we didn't have that foundational pain science knowledge to understand what their descriptors were telling me. So those patients that had pain under the air conditioner were just telling me about allodynia, right? And so now we have that understanding of what that means. But it took me a long time to to recognize how much that if we sat there and really listened and dug in, that we could really understand our, our patients from there. So the clinical conversation even with all my like extra training and manual therapy and some of these like dry needling and some of these other like typical interventions that we think about with our hands, I've really come to value the clinical conversation, both as its ability to understand the patient, but as an intervention in and of itself. Yes. And I think that's very challenging for the therapies, especially for the ones that are starting their careers, as you mentioned, because you, you, you hear all these things and it's like, where? What's going on, really? <laughs> and it doesn't sound like that typical, you know, musculoskeletal MSK type of presentation we, we, we were, at least I was taught, right? Like that, it doesn't fit. And so what happens then when something doesn't fit our perspective? Well, in the clinic, we can kind of go a couple different ways. And my initial route was, well, I don't believe this. I don't understand this. This doesn't make sense. And I've now flipped that and say, like, wait, let's reframe that. Let's try to understand what they're telling us and peel back those layers um, and so it's really helped establish a better therapeutic alliance when I'm working with patients. Yeah. And do you want to talk a little bit about the papers that you wrote and the things that encompass those papers? Yeah. So, you know, because I worked uh, where I worked in Chicago, I really worked with not only a diverse population um, for their jobs, but what their health insurance was. And most of that health insurance tend to hinge on public insurance. And so where I was working at the University of Illinois at Chicago, they had the largest, um, they were the largest provider of Medicaid at that time. And so we were seeing people early 2012, 13, 14, who had never been in the healthcare system for years, but they were now able to access it because of the Affordable Care Act and the, the fact that the state of Illinois accepted the Medicaid expansion way back then. So then, you know, fast forward a few years, I moved here and the state of North Carolina has just expanded Medicaid, right? And so there'd been a whole group of patients that were not, um, available to or had that ability to to get into the healthcare system from the time I was here in, in 2016 until now. And so it's just, you know, a matter of a few a few hundred thousand miles. But like if you go, you know, across the state line, you have different access. And so the patients I treated in Illinois were quite similar to what I was seeing here. It's just from these social political limitations they couldn't access care. And so I was recruited down here to really kind of understand what that meant to provide um, an open a pro bono physical therapy clinic. But before I could do that in good, you know, 
with the best of intentions, I really need to understand the community. And so part of the papers that we're writing was like, first, what is known about vulnerable patients? Those and in that setting, I was talking about those who don't actually have access to care typically. So what is known um, and then what was not known? And that's kind of how these papers and the, and the pro bono clinic all came together is, is the long answer. Um, but in summary, what we find, whether it's here in the U.S. or across the world, is that patients with chronic pain often are not understood. So just like I, I had trouble understanding, many healthcare providers have understanding the, um, trouble understanding their patients with chronic pain. Um, patients who have limited access often report this disjointed care and they have to keep repeating their story over and over again, which gets really frustrating. Um, they get frustrated by, you know, the, the lack of evidence. So the imaging evidence doesn't back up their story. And so then they're less likely to be believed. So they, their journey is often really difficult. And it, it is a journey as, you know, from this injury to the progression of chronic pain to this loss of identity to, you know, what could go um, on to really almost medicalized poverty because they're not able to return to work unless they have a really good encounter with the healthcare system. And, and then that path can transform into something really positive. So the, the vulnerable population has many, many difficulties first accessing healthcare and then being within that healthcare system. Um, from the patient's or from the provider's perspective, right? They, we are more transactional. So we'll see them just for this point in time, even though their journey continues. And often there's that same level of frustration that I was experiencing because I didn't understand what they were telling me. Um, the, the frustration with kind of the bureaucracy of some of the insurance paperwork that they have to do. But what we also see is a lot of um, implicit biases. So healthcare providers tend to um, have this negative perceptions, negative biases, particularly at the intersection for um, minorities. So minorities, racial and ethnic um, education levels and gender. So those three things um, tend to be the things that draw out the most negative implicit biases from healthcare providers, whether they're making pharmaceutical decisions or recommendations um, for a referral on to like a multidisciplinary pain clinic. And so that really does then do a disservice to the patients who are most likely to develop chronic pain, which would be women and minorities and immigrants and those that have attained less education, right? And so we've kind of got this intersection where the most vulnerable um, are going to be like the sum that are most likely to receive implicitly biased care during these conversations. And, and so trying to figure out how we're going to navigate that was where the papers then went on from there. Yeah. And I think like, as you mentioned, chronic pain is so hard because it is kind of like an invisible uh, issue, as they say, because it's how people perceive pain, right? And, and it involves a lot of different factors. So I think that's, that's very challenging for the patient. And then I think it goes to our PT education, right? Because um, at least I graduated many, many years ago. So, like, I didn't have pain science education when I studied. You know, maybe now people, things are changing and then start implementing more of those things. So, it's like they, it's understandable their frustration. And then on PT sides, I think one of the causes is just lack of knowledge in that sense. And... And I, want, I was curious to ask you, what other causes do you think, like, why do you think this negative bias other than like lack of knowledge? But I think it's like the pain size education aspect. Like I can um, understand that because I feel this way. Like I don't feel like I had good education in that aspect. And I was just curious to ask you what else, what are your thoughts on that? 
Yeah. Well, first of all, I think you're hitting on a really big issue, right? And so my colleagues and I had done just a, a survey of the, the currently accredited CAPD program, uh, DPT programs, and only 27 of them had like a standalone pain science course and 18 of those were required. So like that's a very, very small fraction of our programming that does have that. Now the CAPD requirements are changing, which means DPT programs have to follow this moving forward. It will get better, but we do have a, a you know, quite a learning curve to get our, all of our professionals up and running on that. So I do think that we have kind of have an issue with that because the number one reason people are coming to see us in an outpatient setting is because they have pain, right? And so if we don't understand pain, how can we be the best people to serve them? So yes, there's a, a lack of knowledge. And, and the, the PTs and the PTAs that I spoke with as part of my PhD, many of them express that frustration of just not getting enough of that in their entry-level programming. And then and trying to, you know, seek out for their education. It's time consuming. It's, you know, expensive. It does, it takes a while to get caught back up. At the same time, they recognize the difficulties that other healthcare providers also don't have enough pain science education. So even if the health, the, the PTs that we're talking about were super excited about their biopsychosocial approach, and they were going to have these big conversations, they were often hitting up against what the patient had learned from another healthcare provider. And it's particularly if that was a physician or someone that had referred on and they were focusing on more of a surgical management perspective. And the patient tend to have a very strong biomedical perspective. And it's, it was hard for those PTs and PTAs to kind of overcome that, right? So our conversation is not just impacted by what we bring to this that visit, but it's also what the patients have encountered along the way. And, and so we saw that both in the systematic reviews and in the uh, mixed method studies I had done as well. But I think that gets to the bigger point is that these conversations between individuals really are occurring within the context of clinic constraints. So many of the PTs and PTAs found it helpful when patients with similar conditions could be um, scheduled together or that they were able to block off specific time um, where they could have one-on-one time with a patient with chronic pain that was in a quiet setting where they could have that opportunity to, to interact with them and learn a bit more. So you kind of had some of these clinic factors and the systematic reviews um, I did also supported that the clinic itself can either bolster trust between the provider and the patient or decrease it. So it's really interesting when we think about these bigger, broader factors. And, and then we get to the bigger factors, like what, what is it about our, our community and our culture that we perceive pain, right? Because pain is so ubiquitous. We all experience pain, but unless you've actually had chronic pain yourself, it's really hard to kind of conceptualize this invisible disease that doesn't have the imaging um, to support them. And, and we start to stigmatize implicitly, become distrustful in, in our society about what that means when a patient doesn't have imaging results that could support what their complaints are. Like Then we start to create negative stories, like why is this happening and why are they here and what do they really want? Um, right? And so we kind of fall into this. And, and because then things don't line up from our biomedical to biopsychosocial approach, they don't line up with the imaging we do create some stigma. And when we have stigma, that actually erases our ability to empathize. And we can't empathize, then we start to negatively stereotype more. And right. And so we've kind of got ourselves into this vicious cycle of where we kind of get lost understanding the patient. So there's all these big, broad factors that can influence our conversation. And we haven't even got to like the cultural differences yet. So, right. So like how I experience pain in my family may be quite different than how your and your family experience pain. Yeah. I think it's crazy because time, I think time is a big thing because we know that's difficult today on like outpatient settings to have a one-on-one time and that requires a lot of education, a lot of conversation and it's hard to have that time 
And I don't see how that's going to change with like insurance reimbursement going down and people trying to put fit more patients in the schedule. I think that's, that's a big, big thing. And another thing that you said, like other healthcare professionals that don't, if we think we don't have pain science education, I just imagine like even like the physicians that have very little musculoskeletal training and pain science education then is even like further away, I guess. So it's just very complex. Yep. And I think, you know, that that varies by the profession, but also the regions, right? So if we look at Canada or some of Europe and UK, they actually do a much better job of incorporating much more pain science, right? And so we've got all these layers of factors that we're trying to communicate and why pain seems like something we each can understand. It's an easy four-letter word. It's actually a very difficult experience to communicate across. And how about the cultural differences? Yeah, so the so my cultural differences are going to be a bit specific to the patients and the populations I was particularly interested here um, in North Carolina. So we had done surveys in English, and those were done on a telephone. We did them in Spanish, where I partnered with the community leaders to get access to populations that would be interested in answering a, a survey. And then I also did it in Arabic as well. And in so both the Spanish and the Arabic, we were going to either the churches or the mosques or community leaders that um, supported me and believed in me because when I was just trying to call them myself, nobody would answer. And what I had found out was, is that whether this is true or not, I never could figure out. But the, the rumor was that nurses in North Carolina at one time um, would document whether someone would, had their documentation status in the U.S. or not. So for immigrants, they would track that documentation. And so there was this, again, I cannot verify this statement, but there is this perception and belief that healthcare providers were somehow connected with immigration. And if that could be true, that was going to be really hard to get in. So I recognized the vulnerability of patients wanting to get care was, again, being impacted by also big factors. So just like we had big factors impacting our perceptions, they do as well. And I think the biggest thing for patients across all the languages was, you know, they were wanting to speak with us. They were wanting to speak with healthcare providers. They come in trusting the healthcare provider to have this knowledge. Um, but there was also these layers of limitations that would, would impact it. And so, you know, the first thing was financial. If they didn't have access to healthcare, how are they going to get in? Um, and so what we're finding is, is that, you know, across the languages and, and all three of those languages in the big surveys that the patients tend to do things that would they could do on their own. So they could get over-the-counter medication, right, from any kind of drugstore or whatever. They might try like their own massage or creams, and that could be something from their home region or just something over the counter again, ice packs and hot packs, or they would deal with it. So out of like, those are the top three things is them trying to manage it on their own. Um, and then beyond that, it was a little bit more involved with wanting to seek healthcare or not. But but many of the things that they were doing was, was trying to manage it on their own because they often couldn't access care. We also then went back and did a bunch of focus groups um, in the native language or the preferred language of that population. And, and again, the big kind of themes that came across that were that, you know, patients just really wanted to um, a, a clinician that could communicate with them, right, that could you know understand that they were the only ones that had this, these symptoms, but then help them understand how to best manage those symptoms. So they were looking for us to help guide them along the way. Yeah. In... Um, I remember that reading some of your papers, you had you had difference um, between like different cultures on like the pain perception. 
And I think it was women and like non-Caucasian. Yeah. It wasn't something like that. So it's really interesting that research, you can look at a lot of that research and, and, you know, you can, um, they talk about the different thresholds and, you know, a pain pressure threshold. So how quickly, um, when I'm testing you with a pressure algorithm, will you say, ow, so is this pressure I'm giving you, when does it become painful? Right. And so we can look at women and they can think of them having lower thresholds. You can look at minorities having lower thresholds and that becomes like a biological construct. Like why does this, you know, look different, but really we need to flip that to a social construct. So race is a social construct. Um, gender can be a social construct because of the different identities that can be, uh, you know, chosen. And they also then have the difference in the societies, whether the discriminatory or supportive of minorities and women and how they're going to perceive pain. And so what we see is that minorities tend to have worse dysfunction, even at the same level of pain. And so there has to be something that is not a biological nerve being more sensitive, right? There has to be something within that biopsychosocial construct of why perceptions are different. And so we have to remember the whole person using that biopsychosocial model, but remembering that's situated in this context of culture and other sociopolitical marginalization of many of our patients. Yeah. And I remember you mentioned politics as well. So that's interesting that you, like, I remember I read something about, like, the, 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 the clinician has their bias, have their bias, the clinicians have their bias, and then the, the patient as well. And, like, that it impacts how they communicate, right? Do you want to talk a little bit about that? It was my my. I was curious if it did actually impact. There is some research in the healthcare fields um, that show when certain providers have very strong political beliefs that may influence, especially on hot topic um, decisions that physical therapists typically are not involved in, it may in, um, influence their recommendations to the patient. So I was like, oh, well, like what, how, how can this particularly influence us? And so what was interesting is, is when I asked providers, many of them would say, you know, politics, politics have nothing to do with what I do as a clinician. And when I would push a little bit, I'm like, but insurance, right? Access to healthcare is a policy that is made by politicians who are political. So like, how do we kind of recognize the fact that, you know, we want to treat everyone the same, which was kind of a, a common theme from my patient or from the PTs and PTAs. But the fact is that you have to modify your discussion when a patient has certain insurances because you only have so many visits with them. And so in the state of North Carolina for Medicaid, patients have t- currently 27 visits, but that's spread across physical therapy, occupational therapy, and speech therapy, right? And so that's a big limiting factor, when, especially if someone's had a, a big catastrophizing event. Like, how can you maximize what you're going to get into that patient when you may really only get nine visits because the other 18 are being split by the other two professions as well, right? And so I like to kind of push, not that I'm saying we need to be one way or the other political, but be aware of these big social political factors that do influence the care and that we can't actually treat everyone the same because we have, whether it's the constraints of insurance, it's the constraint of the clinic, not letting us have, you know, individual times, like we've got other things that do influence that. Conversely, when I talked to the patients about it, they really had a much more nuanced understanding of like politics and policy and insurance and and how these different discussions playing out. And, and some of this, I was I was doing some of these groups during the the previous presidential election, right? So there's a lot of a lot of awareness of what was going on in the news and how much that impacted their ability and others' ability to get health insurance. And many of the patients 
um, or like from the patient perspective, the English, Arabic, and Spanish speakers, you know, they were happy when the providers were able to advocate for patients and kind of speak up for the patients. They thought it was important that providers provided some kind of pro bono care. Um, some of the, the patients and the community members that I was speaking to were at um, free clinics that are associated with churches or mosques along the way. So they were recognizing the value of healthcare providers giving back to the community and doing some pro bono care, especially when um, universal access to care wasn't available in, in these areas. Yes. And you just mentioned religion. Is that another factor? Have you yeah, looked uh, into that? Yeah, so we, we touched on it and, and, you know, I asked them, you know, were they more comfortable with healthcare providers or, you know, their religious leader, whether it was a mom or a priest or a minister or whatever. Um, and, and for the most part, if it was a physical condition, they wanted to speak to the healthcare provider. But it's not to say that they weren't using religion to help frame the condition. So, you know, um, the my Arabic speakers um, were both Muslim. And so they spoke about, you know, pain as both a way to kind of endure. And it was part of, you know, something that came from God. And it was part of this trial that would you know, be part of their religious experience. And, and so there was that component to it as well. But then we also have um, others, my Spanish and Arabic and English speakers would talk about using prayer as a way to kind of help them manage their symptoms as well. And so you have these different, you know, spiritual perspectives that both inform why someone thinks they have a condition, but then also how they're going to manage that. And I, you know, I was never taught to ask those type of questions in, in my, uh, you know, basic DPT degree, which I, lo I love my basic um, entry-level programming. Don't get me wrong. It's just, we've learned so much in the last, you know, so many years. And so I think we recognize that there is this almost, there's another like biopsychosocial spiritual approach out there where we kind of value and endorse and kind of help, um, help our patients um, meeting them where they are to use their religious understanding on how we can help them with their, their pain science understanding and how we can, you know, incorporate, you know, whether it's a prayer position that they need as part of their functional movement, like we can do things like that as well. Yeah. And I remember when I was treating in a clinic in Nashville that had a lot of, like was an immigrant area and the special, I think was the Muslim women, they couldn't be treated in front of men. So we have to put them in different rooms. And then when you're very busy in the clinic, it makes it even more challenging for the therapist to be checking on everybody. So that's another aspect of different cultures that like when you're, you're seeing, they, they, they have just different um, perspectives, I guess. Yeah, and I think you hit right yeah. there on it. So we talked about the financial barrier, right, as an access to care, but you're hitting on the non-financial barriers. So, you know, one of the things we we're thinking about in the in the pro bono clinic was what are these non-financial barriers? And you're talking about the ability to accommodate the patient's request. Like, can we, can we provide a female provider to a female patient that needs that for religious cultural perspectives? And can we then still provide that same level of care when we're doing that, right? And so the, those kind of non-financial barriers, I think, are important for us as clinicians to really be aware of. Like, do we understand what our patients are needing? Can't If we're trying to meet the patient where they are, then do, have we addressed these? You know, do we have hours that make for when they are off work? Do we have, you know, we tried to make sure our pro bono clinic was on a, a public transportation route because we know transportation is a big issue or a lack of transportation is a big issue. So, you know, we were making sure we were on a bus route. We made sure we had hours that were, were 
available for them. Um, and, and so that, uh, that availability is important as well. But I think the accommodation is one you're hitting on that's really, really important for us. Yeah. And what, what were the expe uh, expectations on the patient side, their perspectives in relation to their therapists and that were making them like frustrated or drop out of care? Yeah, that's a great question. So one of the things we were really trying to dig into is like, what were these perspectives? And we wanted to provide a safe space for them to, to share that because, you know, here I am as a healthcare provider asking you what your perspectives are about me. And I wanted the most honest one, right? So that's why we did it in their native language. Um, and we were trying to be quite respectful of that. And what we would hear is often... Um, one, that they recognize that healthcare is a business. So just like you alluded to with the, the multiple patients at a time and the frequent, and, the, and they even said, you know, healthcare is like the airlines now, it's just a business. And, and that's a, a, an understanding, like they get that it's capitalism and this is the US and you're, you're trying to make things work. And they also recognize like, that's really, really frustrating. They don't want it necessarily just to be a business. They want to be more than that. They want you to communicate with them as if they were human beings. And often, um, unfortunately, many of the patients, when they talked about the positive care they received, it was under this umbrella of I've never had care like that. So only very few of them actually had really positive encounters across the spectrum of healthcare providers. And, you know, again, there, there's multiple layers to that, the, the access uh, language barriers, those kind of things. But what they really across all languages were wanting us is just, just to talk with them, to listen to them, to put the computer down, to look at them, to understand them, to, to hear their story, right? They wanted to, to get the, um, to recognize that they're still humans. They're not the diagnosis. They're not the chronic pain patient, but they're this patient with a name who has this identity and they also have chronic pain. And so how can we help them maximize what they want to do? And so, and that was the big kind of take home across, across all the languages is what they were really wanting us to get at. Unfortunately, um, and, and we also have a very large immigrant population here in the triad. And so many of the patients that were immigrants talked about the discrimination and stigma they had encountered across many different healthcare providers. Um, part of it was the pain diagnosis. Part of it was race, ethnicity, um, the language barrier, or just not having the right card. So not having that health insurance card seemed to drive a lot of the negative encounters they had, unfortunately. And I think that's very complex and complicated because um, with all these aspects that you mentioned, like the, the, I think the talking to the patient, listening to them, I think that's something that we, we heard about before and we, we have to like try to get better as clinicians to not just go and check all the boxes and run through the assessment, which sometimes is really difficult time conflicts. But the other aspect or like having this contact with different cultures, different languages, uh, people from all different countries. I think that's something that maybe more clinicians haven't had the chance to experience and maybe don't, don't know how to like deal with it uh, in a better way. I don't know. Yeah, no, I think you're hitting on something there. So, you know, it, it's an invisible disease, if you will, chronic pain, because often the, the symptoms don't line up with our, our traditional imaging. We know better with quantitative sensory testing how to like pull out some of this knowledge um, and understand them better. But that that's one thing. It's also an invisible population that many of us may have not treated because they just didn't have access to our particular clinic. So again, because I've worked in a pro bono clinic and in a 
a Medicaid clinic up in Illinois, like I had access to patients that many, many providers don't typically have the privilege of working with. And it was, it was such an honor to work with such a diverse group of uh, patients and just learn so much about different ways of the way they approached their life, the way they approached their condition and, and really what they're wanting to get out of it. And so I do think, you know, seeking out opportunities, um, to work with diversity is is really important, um, and you know the APT Code of Ethics wants us to treat pro bono, like provide pro bono care, right? That's that's one way to consider that, I guess. Um, but I think for clinicians, like just getting out into the community. So a lot of these surveys I did were like at health fairs or at community fairs, or you know just getting myself out there, like you would market any other way, but being intentional about asking what they wanted, not saying here I am with this clinic, but hey. I'm looking at this. I really want to hear what it's important to you. And I think, you know, there's a lot of research that's coming out about how we can partner, how health care providers can partner with uh, patients and understand the specific cultures they are, they are from and representing so that we can then next time moving forward, do a better job of connecting with our, our patients. And, and part of the thing, my patient, the, the, the community population, I keep calling them the patients, but the community population kept telling me is that, you know, they were wanting to speak with me so that I could then bring their message out to others so that we could then do a better job in general, right? They wanted more people to have some really good opportunities and really good experiences with healthcare providers. And it really was just us needing to learn a little bit more um, and and looking at that. And and there's some interesting research out of Australia and New Zealand where they um, partnered with some of the, the First Nations and Indigenous populations to use words and phrasings that are representative of that culture so that they could understand how the healthcare visit could work together between the provider and that. And by doing so, the thought is, you know, we can help offset and minimize some of the health inequities by just having a better conversation and more awareness of our biases as, as we try to minimize those biases and kind of meet the patient where they are when we're working with them kind of thing. Yeah, that's great. And I think just being exposed, if you have the chance like I did, and I, of course, I'm not American, and then, like, I went to work in a clinic with all this super diverse population, uh, and it was just a lot of different challenges that that brings, the language barrier and cost, and, like, the, the their prayers and, like, the, the way that they had to stop in the middle of the session to do their prayers, like, was something very different for me. So, like, just being exposed to all those different things, I think it's, it's really important to have a better understanding of like how the cultures are so different. Yeah. And just, I mean, I think the biggest thing is just to stay curious. I made plenty of mistakes working with um, diverse populations up in Illinois and, you know, you, you learn from those and, and you try to get better, but I, I really just try to stay as curious as possible and ask, you know, ask them about what's going on because it, it you have to dig a little bit more as there's a little bit more open-ended questions um, but you're really trying to understand what's most important to them. And that is the essence of what we're trying to do, is particularly in chronic pain, right? If we know that the therapeutic alliance can give us better outcomes, so how do we get to that therapeutic alliance when it's a really complicated, you know, presentation, a diverse population and those kind of things? And it's going to take a little bit more, but if we can get to that therapeutic alliance, we can help them have better outcomes. So how can we communicate better? That's the, the tough question. That how is can the we tough question. <laughs> I think the first thing to remember is that communication truly is in the eye of the beholder. And I am paraphrasing, um, I think his name was Spitzberg. He's out of California and written a, a communication kind of summary. 
And the big thing is it doesn't matter how good I personally think I am at communicating or how bad I think I am at communicating. It really depends on what the patient is thinking in the moment when you're communicating with them, right? So I think the first thing is to recognize we may not always be as successful as we had intended. Some times our impact just wasn't where our intent was. And so that requires a lot of then like reflecting and asking back. So if we're truly going to get to that patient-centered model, not only do we have to be, you know, trying to meet them where they are, we also have to be open to feedback and asking them if they understood, um, asking them to repeat back to you, you know, what, what you'd explained, but then also checking in like, hey, was the you know, am I, am I doing okay? Am I culturally appropriate? You know, I think about the common surveys we send out after we finish care, usually patient satisfaction type of things, right? But what if we asked about the empathy? So there's like a whole series of studies out there about how much empathy can actually improve pain outcomes and that you can even minimize the risk for catastrophizing. And yet when we ask clinicians, or not me, but like other, other researchers have asked clinicians, you know, how good are you at empathizing? Most healthcare providers think they're really, really good at empathizing. Most of the patients are not always agreeing, right? So there's a disconnect between what how we perceive ourselves versus what um, the patients are perceiving. And so I think we have to get back to um, asking better questions um, when we are following up with our patients to see what they um, did think about that overall encounter. Yeah, and I think that's very important having the humility to kind of like go over the surveys first of all like implementing those questions and then like stop and reflect about what we are doing and how are we dealing with the situations and and trying to improve yes i mean and, and it's tricky and they're hard conversations right so we we did implement that little empathy it's only five questions on the patient's perspectives of empathy and, you know, we didn't get always the best scores. And so, you know, the question is why? So, you know, digging in there and kind of asking what happened, what was going on, those kind of things are good. You know, when when tough conversations come up, I think it's important to figure out how to hear both sides of that story. So I think, you know, we have to be comfortable with that duality of tension where one person's like, well, I, I didn't mean it that way. And the patient's like, well, this is how I perceived it. And, and both can be true. The fact is, though, that impact wasn't where we were wanting it. So how can we, you know, understand and, and under, be able to self-reflect accurately and then build something moving forward? But I think if we can do that, that gets to the second most part, important part, which would be trust. So if empathy is one of our big things that we want to get to, trust is going to be the other one. And because trust is transactional, it has to be reset every time the patient comes back. You want to keep building that. It's, it's really important um, to kind of listen in, to check in, use those active listening skills. And so, you know, we talk about we want to be trustworthy, we want to empathize, but it's really checking ourselves and, and following up and, and digging in to see if we we did do all those things. Um, but a lot of that does take, you know, intentional scheduling. So making sure that we have time to work with that patient, uh, maybe that you have a block of time set aside to work with patients who have chronic pain so that you can focus with them and kind of deal deal with the situation as it comes up because usually it's more complicated than just, you know, moving forward um, with a ankle, you know, sprain that's super simple to get back kind of thing. So, yeah. And I think it's crazy how like when we graduated, we have this idea of SPT, at least I had like knowledge. It's all you need. You know, you need to know about everything, all disease, all these techniques and like tools. And we don't, we don't have these, idea of like how important it is those other skills like building trust having empathy 
making sure the patient is feeling hurt and like how all of all of those factors impact on the outcome and and you can be the most knowledge physical therapist but if you can get that communication right you're not gonna go anywhere yeah no that's so true right and so we always kind of go back to that bedside manner and the kind of the you know stereotyping of who is and isn't good at, you know, their bedside manners. Well, physical therapists value the relationship. Every student I interview in our program, they're like, yes, you know, I'm excited for the relationship and I'm glad our health, our profession can build that time in. But, you know, like we, then we like this constraints of real life really kind of start to cut away at that. And so I think valuing communication again as its own intervention is important. I know not a lot of programs have dedicated communication courses because we can consider that a soft skill, but there's so many systematic reviews out there about the, the importance of a therapeutic alliance. I think we need to recognize that it's, it's the vital skill that we need to move forward um, to help our patients um, get better with chronic pain. Yeah. And what else do you think that we can do as PTs to improve that? Yeah. So that, I think it's really, really hard um, because I think we have to be aware of our biases and that, and that's a hard self-check, right? And so under this whole new perspective of um, like this neurocultural approach to empathy, we recognize it's hard to empathize with someone who is not in group with us, but as professions, we're going to be out of group with our patients purely on knowledge alone, right? Because we've got the the extra training in physical therapy that our patients don't but our, our workforce is not super diverse, and I know there's being steps to, to take that up, but our pac- patients probably don't look a lot like us. And so recognizing we're coming in with implicit biases, recognizing we, as a society, tend to stigmatize against chronic pain, recognizing that we've got these barriers kind of structurally that are, can limit our ability to communicate is going to be really important as we try to be intentional and set aside whatever time we can to work with our patients. I do think it's really important to, you know, put the devices away. So, and try to communicate just with that um, patient while they're there so that they can um, know that you're watching them. Those nonverbals really do play a big role in how much the patient is picking up on trust and empathy along those ways as well. So we might be saying the right things, but if our if our body movements, our attention somewhere else, then it's not matching that. So we really do have to kind of do that. And then seeking out the knowledge on pain science, right? Like I think that's that's the big thing because if they're if they're speaking the language of pain science, but we don't know it, we're not going to interpret what they're telling us very well. Yes. And any resource that you recommend people go to yes. um, get um, this information? So I, you know, I've got lots of things I, I listen to and I love to read. So I think, um, but for the pain science world, the APTA um, ortho section has a pain SIG group. So I, I, you know, and part of that, so I recommend that. I also like the academic um, and leadership group, I think it's the Academy of Leadership and and Innovation, but they have a global health um, SIG as well, which I really like because that gives you opportunities um, to explore diverse kind of perspectives along the way. Um, And they've been really an informative and kind of helpful kind of group through the profession. I think seeking out community, um, you know, continuing education, whether it's related to pain science, um, related to communication, those are always really, really important things. But I also think just like being a diverse reader is helpful, right? So like reading fiction is good, reading nonfiction is good, because then you can start to hear and see different cultural experiences, you know, kind of in the safety of your own reading um, or podcasts. Podcasts are always great, of course. And then um, speaking of podcasts, I do have to recommend the AOMPT 
the American Academy of Orthopedic Manual Physical Therapy Research Podcast. Um, I was co-chair when that was started, so just a little disclaimer there. But they've done a great job of having a very diverse group of perspectives on pain and communication and, and manual therapy and all sorts of different things. So they're also a great podcast for your listeners to consider as well. Very good. Um, I know we talked a lot. Uh, anything else that you want to add before we we finalize our conversation? Anything that we forgot? Um, I, I'm just very, you know, thrilled that you're, you had me on here. I'm super excited for our PT in our profession to just, you know, look at things a bit differently. I think we're always well-intentioned. We don't want to treat people differently. And yet I encourage us to think that it's okay to treat them differently within the constraints of why they're there, right? We want to maximize their outcomes and we should be thinking of it not as differently, but this is individualized healthcare. So what do you specifically need is going to be different than the next person. So it is okay to say, I'm going to approach this patient differently because I'm approaching them as that individual. They're not the diagnosis, but they are the individual. And we can hopefully optimize their outcomes better that way. Yeah. I think it's a very challenging time for physical therapists. Um, because I think things are just become harder and harder and more demanding and less time. And, and you have to do so many things at the same time. So um, it's, it's hard. It is really hard. And, and I think, you know, I know there's a lot in our profession that, you know, supports reimbursement and things like that. I think we need to have other conversations like why is why is physical therapy not a required benefit for Medicaid? Why are, do we have these kind of external barriers on our care? If we are the experts in managing our patient. Why do we have to acquiesce to, to some business model that says you only get 27 visits per year and you have to split that up between the different professions? So I think there's also room for us to advocate in different ways um, so that we can maybe remove some of those bigger barriers to help our individual conversations go better. Yes. Alicia, thank you so much for coming on and, and talking about all those different topics and situations and communication that I think it's very important for our profession. Um, and if people want to uh, learn more about you, uh, read your papers, how they can find you or contact you. Uh, you can find me at the HPU uh, Pro Bono Clinic. I'll, you'll find my website there. I'm also on Twitter at Alicia E underscore Physio, or you can email me um, at aemerson1 at highpoint.edu. Awesome. Thank you so much, Alicia, for, for coming on. Really appreciate your time. It's so great to meet you. That's all for today's episode of PT Pro Talk. We hope you enjoyed this discussion. Make sure to follow us wherever you listen to podcasts so you can be notified when we release future episodes. You can also join our email list to receive updates and new episodes at ptprotalk.com. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please leave us a rating or review and share with other clinicians you think might benefit from this conversation. We are always working to deliver you a better show and would love to hear your thoughts. If you have a moment, please help us by answering a quick survey and let us know what topics and people you'd like to hear, things you like about the show, and how we can improve. Thank you all of you who have already responded to the survey. It is very helpful. Also, on the show notes, you can find the guest's contact information and favorite resources, links for the survey, our social media, 
YouTube channel where you can watch the whole episode and our website where you can find more information about the podcast. Thanks again for listening and until next time.